Hello and welcome to QPod, QIC's Investor Insights podcast series. I'm Craig Valenzuela, Managing Director for Global Business Development, and each week we invite our listeners to take 10 and get the latest economic insights from our in-house economics team. And good morning once again to our Chief Economist, Dr. Matthew Peter. Matthew, we're just three months away, can you believe it, from the Japanese Olympics, but it's pretty nail-biting stuff as to whether it will go ahead. What's your take? Well, that's right, Craig. It's it's um, it's right on the margin, I think. Um, I'd be nervous if I was an athlete. Matthew, maybe in, in local news and slightly more positive news, we've had a, some blockbuster data, uh, including business sentiment at an all-time high in Australia and consumer sentiment at an 11-year high, with over 70,000 jobs created in March and – the unemployment rate, interestingly enough, falling to 5.6%. This is all despite the effects of COVID on our tourism and education sectors. The Australian economy is clearly going gangbusters. And as Bloomberg's top-rated labour market Australian forecaster, Matthew, are these survey results justified in being so upbeat about the domestic economy? Yeah, it's a great set of data this week, uh, Craig, you know, reflecting our handling of COVID, actually. Um, and, and it probably bodes well for the uh, the coming three to six months as well. And, and by the way, Craig, thanks for the plug. Always uh, gratefully accepted. Uh, Welcome. But actually, I don't believe we want to get carried away because in a way, that's yesterday's news. That's looking in the rearview mirror. To date, it's been how countries have handled COVID that's been generating the economic data. But going forward, the drivers of growth, they're going to change. And it's all about how quickly we can open our international borders and how quickly we can roll out the vaccine and achieve herd immunity. Well, let's get into that, Matthew, because Australia has been the envy of other countries due to our low community rates of infection in the rearview mirror, if you will, if you will. Yet with just 1.4 million doses or 2.7% of the population to date vaccinated, should we be more envious of, say, Europe and North America, given their vaccination rollout and the race to have herd immunity? Well, unfortunately, Craig, uh, given where we could have been, I think, and the lead up, uh, our performance to date with the vax rollout is is nothing short of abysmal. Uh, And you asked about comparisons with Europe, North America. Well, if I look at the the vaccination rates in, say, the UK, you know, heading towards 50%, uh, probably over 50%. Now, US heading to 40%. uh, And even the Europeans that we sort of think pretty um, disorganised in their uh, approach, and they have been, they're still um, heading towards 20%. Where are we? Uh, I mean, we're not even at 1%, 2% yet. Uh, And this is a very poor outcome for us. And when we look at uh, a comparison of when herd immunity is likely to be achieved, we're lagging. We're we're equivalent to many emerging markets in the sense that it's probably now not going to be until maybe 2023 that we uh, achieve 70 to 80% fully vaccinated. I know the government's saying a bit earlier than that, but, you know, it's definitely not going to be until sometime 2022, and who knows? Yeah, and interestingly enough as well, Matthew, that New Zealand, our travel bubble partner, has got just 136,000 doses put to work at the moment. So it's an interesting test for our region as well. You're listening to Craig Valenzuela and QIC's Take 10 podcast, where our Chief Economist, Dr. Matthew Peter, is taking us through the latest economic data that's shaping your investment outlook. Matthew, the recent announcement of that travel bubble I mentioned with New Zealand being underway has me dreaming a little bit of an international holiday. 
Despite reports, Australia is in discussions with other Australian, Asian Pacific rather nations. Our Prime Minister, Scott Morrison, recently stated, we're just not in a position to move forward on any other travel bubbles at this time. Just like last night, he also warned of the community transition that could eventuate from opening up the borders. So my question to you is, should we be braver, Matthew, when it comes to reopening our borders for that trade and relaxation impact? Well, well, Craig, the first thing I'd say is I'd take, um, take you up on the characteristic of whether we've been brave or not. I think we have been brave, brave in the sense that when you look at that first lockdown, we committed as a nation to very you know, strict lockdown conditions, social distancing conditions. Melburnians did the same in the second lockdown. So I think we are brave, but I also think it's, it's right that we should be conservative because we did take that approach of locking down uh, very sharply, uh, the first lockdown in Melbourne, et cetera. Uh, and because we've been adhering to social distancing, We've been able to keep, if not our international borders, our, our interstate borders open. And going forward, until we hit uh, herd uh, immunity, it's really important that we keep the interstate borders open. So constraining COVID is very important. We also need caution until we can guarantee that we don't risk a breakout of COVID and open our international borders. And there, I just ask you, look at the experience of Europe to see what can happen if we open uh, prematurely. You know, go back to what happened in Europe last year. Europeans thought they had COVID under control, under pressure of opening, predominantly for the tourism industry in the Northern Hemisphere summer, um, they opened the economy. And next minute, you know, they had a severe outbreak. I've got a uh, an example very close to, to, to me, actually. Uh, my wife's uh, Italian. Her hometown's right on the, the Swiss border in the north of Italy. And last and, and this year, what happened when the, uh, the, uh, the ski season started up again, the Swiss kept their border open. They kept the, uh, the, the ski fields going. People from Milan went through to Switzerland. And next thing we know, um, Switzerland have a major uh, outbreak of, um, of, uh, of of COVID. And that's the risk I see that we run. Well, let, let's pick up that example then with the Swiss, Matthew. You, you, you talk about the Swiss staying open, but I recall the performance of that Swiss economy was only marginally worse than Australia's over 2020, yet they've kept open all their sectors of the economy. And of course, Australia is very reliant and had a great tailwind from the iron ore sector, but we do have or had a very big and strong education and tourism sector. So, is this a better long-term strategy than Australia's approach, which has, of course, shuttered those industries, thereby creating somewhat of an existential threat to those tourism, education, other service-like sectors for us? Well, uh, you're right about the Swiss in terms of average annual growth rates over the last year. But the problem that Switzerland and, and Europe have faced is, is the yo-yo effect. That is, you know, shutting down, having the economy hit, reopening, having a big jump in growth and then to have it unwind again. Now, the Swiss have just endured a third wave, actually, and we are expecting, uh, as uh, you know, all the forecasts are, that economic activity will actually be down one percentage point in the first quarter, this current quarter. Australia, on the other hand, is likely to grow by one percent. Now, over 2021, um, we probably will outperform the Swiss economy by around 2%, the euro economy by, by over double that. So they're, 
there is that that yo-yo effect that we've got to try and avoid. Not only does it lead to um, a lot of volatility, but it saps business confidence, it saps consumer confidence as well. So in Australia, Matthew, let's look at the alternate argument here. Uh, foreign tourists spend less than Australian tourists spend overseas, uh, that being the opposite, of course, to Switzerland. So with the borders closed and Australians forced to take holidays here, won't our local tourist industry be a winner? Yeah, well, you're right. Uh, Aussie tourists don't spend, um, or spend more, I should say, overseas than uh, domestic tourists spend here. But the key is, will Aussie tourists spend as much on a domestic holiday as they would on a foreign holiday? So, for example, you know, Take, take you. I know this is an example that's uh, close to your heart at the moment. So the Balanzuela family, if you're going to have an overseas holiday, would set aside money for that, be a big expenditure item. Now, all of a sudden, the Balanzuela um, family can't go overseas and the Balanzuela family looks at what they're going to spend on here. And certainly they will have a domestic holiday, maybe up to Byron instead of uh, Aspen. But then they'll also look around and see what else can I spend my what I would have spent overseas on it. I might spend it on uh, refurbishing the house, might spend it on a big flat screen TV. I don't know. But so the basic idea, though, is that what we see is that big lumpy expenditure um, on an overseas trip is sort of diffused across a number of expenditures, only part of it being the the tourist industries. Explains a lot with regards to Byron Bay rentals uh, pricing and also (laughs) the Harvey Norman stock price. Uh, You're listening to Craig Valenzuela and QIC's Take 10 podcast, where our chief economist, Dr. Matthew Peter, is taking us through the latest economic impacts of sovereign responses to the coronavirus pandemic. Matthew, we've now seen concerns raised on many of the vaccines in production, be it Moderna, AstraZeneca, etc. And now even Pfizer overnight is suggesting a third dose might be required for their vaccine program as well. During this time, we've also had the very worrying P1 strain from Brazil emerge. So with the Australian government now all in on Pfizer, what will a delay in our vaccine rollout mean by way of cost to our economy? Apart from the loss of uh, tourism dollars, there's also the loss of uh, educational service dollars as uh, students, uh, international students, uh, are unable to come into Australia. The other big ticket item really that affects the economy is immigration. Our our uh, immigration program is on hold. We think we're losing at least 300,000 skilled migrants into the uh, economy, and that's going to reduce uh, the level of the workforce and the skill base. There's other less high-profile costs that are extremely important. For example, you know, foreign investors, when they're looking to um, invest directly into the Australian economy, typically require uh, site uh, evaluation uh, in terms of doing due diligence. Uh, and, and that sort of restriction, which is less sort of spoken about, and even though we uh, now have access to technology such as Zoom and, and Teams and whatnot, that inability of um, overseas investors to be able to come actually into Australia and check out um, the uh, potential investment, I think, is also something that is that we should be concerned about. Now, the total cost of all of these uh, measures is difficult to assess, but it's clearly potentially material. In fact, just the loss of the skilled migrant program itself, we think is reducing the level of production by about 4% over the next couple of years. Matthew, we started this podcast discussing the strong Australian economy that's no doubt putting pressure on our monetary stance. Yet, We ended the podcast with the very real threat and ongoing threat of the coronavirus pandemic to our economy. 
What's your key takeaway and advice from the current situation? Yes, well, the extension of the, uh, or the delay, I should say, of the, of, the, of the vaccine and the closure of the borders that that's going to entail is bad news for some of our key industries that are our drivers of the future, such as educational service and tourism. And so that those aren't um, to be hollowed out, the government must provide direct support, which they are in the terms of tourism, to keep those economies going while until such time as we can open borders. That's, that's the first thing I would say. The second thing is the government must be now looking towards the other drivers, the other key drivers of, our, of the future of our economy and, and be starting to think about providing targeted support to those as well uh, in that we can think of health, we can think of um, technology, we can think of biotech, etc. Finally, I'd say that while the Australian economies experienced outstanding performance in response to COVID. The recent hiccup with our vaccine program is actually a, a timely reminder that we've not yet returned to normal. Uh, as the vaccine program is delayed, we must remain COVID vigilant if we are to avoid further waves of the virus leading to devastating lockdowns of the economy. Thanks, Matthew. And it doesn't seem like our yield curve will be shifting too far just yet. Matthew, a lot to get through this morning. And whilst the Australian economy enjoys continued strong economic outcomes, as you highlighted, the coronavirus continues to be showing how damaging it can be and how what a daunting backdrop it has for the Australian economy. And with the education and tourism sectors possibly going through a prolonged impact, should our government look to support the other export sectors within our economy to take up that slack, including health, technology, biotech, and of course, our financial market sectors? And in a final comment, congratulations to the mighty Arsenal, who, despite very volatile form lately, travelled to the Czech Republic overnight and had a convincing win to make the semi-finals of the Europa League. I'm Craig Valenzuela for QIC's QPod. You can contact us at QPod at QIC.com with your feedback and questions. Thank you for listening and have a super weekend.